Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to an episode of the Audio Signals Podcast with Marco Ciappelli. In this new season, Audio Signals is repositioning its antennas, focusing not just on the stories, but on the storytellers. In our modern hybrid analog digital society, the art of storytelling has never been more vital or displayed such a diverse array of forms. Recognizing this, our conversations will spotlight the narrators, providing a unique exploration into the minds behind the narratives. From authors to podcasters, visual artists to songwriters, and everything in between, we will engage with all who contribute to this extraordinary tapestry of human experience. We are all made of stories after all. All right, everybody, this is Marco Ciappelli. Welcome to another episode of uh, Audio Signals uh, on ITSP Magazine. As you know, lately, I have repositioned the antenna to talk a little bit more about stories and storytellers. Today, it's not really a story in terms of uh, um, an adventure, although in a way it is, it's our human <laughs> adventures, if I may define it so. And it's, of course, based on reality. It's, uh, it's something that we are facing um, every day here in America, but also in other parts of the world. And I look at this as the relationship between uh, different people that live, especially in a democracy and in our society. An analysis, from what I understand, of um, the situation of racism and how politics are somehow instrumentalizing the story and maybe again we go back in the story you can tell the same story from different perspective and is received and again instrumentalized for politics sometimes in a unfortunately in a, in a different way I am not the one qualified to talk about this so we actually have a person a professor uh, Julia Hooker from Brown University professor of political science uh, she wrote a book called Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. And uh, we are going to talk about that. So for the people already looking at the video, you see she's here with me. For the people listening, here she is. Juliet, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm very happy to be here. And I have many questions. I'm sure the audience will have many questions. So I'll try to guess what they will want to know. But let's start with uh, who you are, your background, and uh, what made you decide to write this book? I know you wrote other before, but this one in particular. So to get the conversation started. Of course. So I'm currently the Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science. Sorry, that's a mouthful um, at Brown University. And um, my work over the course of my career has been um, really focused on I'm a political theorist. And so I've been thinking a lot about racial justice, about how we might, um, you know, have a about democratic theory. And I draw a lot of my work from um, African-American political thought. And so this current book is, is a book about political loss. It's about the way in which various responses to loss, the ways in which people have mobilized around real and perceived loss in US democracy and how that affects 
the the strength and resilience of, of democratic institutions. And so um, the, the title of the book is Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. And it basically argues that black grief and white grievance are two of the things that are really driving um, contemporary, um, you know, mobilizations around race in the U.S. right now. And um, two examples of those, for example, are the, the movement for black lives and all of the racial justice protests of 2020 that were really mobilized by police killings of, of black people. And then on the one hand, um, the other hand, of course, you know, things like the January 2021 insurrection at the Capitol that were driven in part by this sense of, of, of a loss that had happened and that was a primarily white set of folks who, who felt like they, they had been, you know, that even though the, the election was legitimate, that they had um, been cheated out of their um, uh, of their candidate winning. And so the book is trying to think about how we respond to loss and how that becomes a force in politics. Right. And so the first thought to me, especially because I often talk about society and technology, it goes immediately into social media, echo chambers, mm -hmm. and amplifying this conversation mm -hmm. for one gain and another loss. And again, spinning this cube to show one face it of it, <laughs> according to what your main interest is. But from what I understand in the book, you also go back before social media and mm -hmm. highlight the fact that these kind of conversations have been already instrumentalized and also helped in the past the, the civil rights movement as well. So can we start from maybe the the beginning, chronologically speaking, and then we can see what's going on now. Absolutely. So, you know, so in the book, I go back to earlier moments in U.S. history in the 19th and early 20th century, when we saw these mobilizations around loss, um, particularly Black activism, and they were often followed by these moments of, of white resistance. And, and so, you know, both you know, mobilization driven by black grief and white grievance are not new. Um, and, you know, I, I talk about different moments um, in the book. One of those moments is um, there's a chapter in the book that looks at the work of Harriet Jacobs and Ida B. Wells. And Jacobs is writing, of course, during she was an enslaved woman and she writes this narrative in which she talks about the horrors of slavery and the ways in which she tried to resist. So she's writing about the you know, the pre-Civil War in the pre-Civil War era. And then Wells is, write, is, is writing at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, during the height of lynching and, you know, these white race massacres that are happening throughout the country. And what's really fascinating, I think, in thinking about, you know, the use of technology is that she is one of, Wells is one of the first people to start using photographs of lynchings to try to uh, impel people to um, to oppose the right these horrible um, you know spectacles where you know the lynching photographs are a really interesting artifact because they're not taken as evidence that the lynching happened they're taken as souvenirs and so people are taking these photographs and smiling and taking them as a memento 
of these horrible moments of, of, um, of violence and, and racial terror. And she turns that on its head and instead starts using them to prove to audiences that when she's telling them these massacres are happening, that it's true. So that's an interesting moment, right? Where this new technology, the photograph starts to be used in these struggles over how to tell the story of racial violence, how to get an audience to believe you and then, um, you know, we see some of the, the same kind of um, debates happening that, you know, you see later in now with the videos of police violence or the ways in which people, you know, misinformation and the ways in which people talk about, um, you know, what might have happened or how, um, whether to believe the evidence that, you know, an atrocity happened that we see on in these discussions on social media. Right. And uh, I understand you focus on the condition in the United States, the democracy, mm -hmm. how it gets affected here. But I was reading your, your background. You actually, you have studies and, and I believe you, you come from Latin America. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm from Europe. I like to think about the differences in the way that certain culture affect a certain topic. And do you feel like this is a, a very unique and belonging to the, the United States democracy type of conversation or it can be spinning to a more wider sociological angle in other part of the world? Yeah, this is a really good question. So I think in, you know, the book itself is, is, is certainly focused and, and draws most of its examples and its analysis from the history of the United States, particularly 19th and 20th century. But I think the, the questions that I raise about political loss and how people respond to it, I think um, are, are applicable beyond the United States. So, you know, so for example, one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea of grieving activism, right? How people who have lost um, loved ones in particular become activists in the wake of their death to try to get justice for their loved ones um, who, who suffered um, some kind of injustice. And this is something that we see all over the world, right? If you look at Latin America, where I am from, um, you know, one of the iconic examples of particularly mothers doing this kind of grieving activism is the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, whose, you know, peaceful protests became so central, um, you know, in actually, um, you know, making the case for the, the brutality of the of the dictatorship in Argentina that they were opposing. And so I think these kinds of, um, you know, these ways in which the book tries to think through how people mobilize around loss go beyond the examples of, of racial politics in the US that I focused on in the book. And is there some recurring technique some kind of, you know, like I, I like to talk about propaganda that has always existed, except that now we have different technology. I go back to that mm -hmm. and we can amplify, we can use different media compared with dropping uh, flyers on, on, a, on a war zone in the enemy line. Now we are doing it on social media. And mm -hmm. I don't want to compare this with an enemy. I don't, I 
don't like personally to go into us and them conversation, but it certainly drives towards uh, that us and them like, okay, this is what happened. How do I instrumentalize this? How do I not? So my, I guess to go back, it's do you see analyzing the past and the present, some recurring uh, technique, uh, some maybe, I don't want to say mistake, but maybe some way that the conversation could be amplify better, even when you do the griefing or the, the griefing maybe part, because I don't want to help <laughs> the, the grievance for that for sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you know there there are a number of of um, of strategies that I think we see recurring over time when people are trying to do this kind of activism to make the the losses or the injustices that they have suffered visible. One of them is 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 enumeration, quantification, right? So if you think about um, you know when people put out these these benchmarks of like. 100,000 people have died from the, or a million people have died, let's say from the coronavirus pandemic most recently, or, you know, or how many people have died in war. Um, these are ways of, of trying to, to, to bring home, right, the costs of, um, of, of, a, of a conflict. Um, and often the, the, the critique of that is that it, it's, it doesn't give us a sense of who the victims were as people, right? That they become just these, these numbers. And so the other um, strategy that I think we see throughout is the attempt to humanize the victims, right? To say, you know, to tell the stories of individual people that they were um, members of families, that they leave people behind who care about them to tell their stories. Um, so that people will care about them. Now, the danger there is that, you know, I, I saw a recent, um, you know, critique of, of the, the ways in which um, the, the case of a, of a journalist who was a dual American citizen, how that was responded to when it's like, suddenly it was, it became what was important was that she was an American citizen and therefore you should care as opposed to she had been killed. And it, we should care even if she wasn't an American citizen, right? So the, I think the, you know, those are some of the, the dominant strategies and each has risks, right? Or, or has um, dangers that come with it. Um, but I think beyond that, the other issue is this question of, of you know, why we we attend or we care more about the losses of some people than others and why some people have to prove their humanity before we'll care about their suffering. And so that there's always a cost for people who, who have to convince us that we need to care about the losses that they're suffering. Which is usually the point where I shake my my head because <laughs> shouldn't be like this, right? Um, can you define maybe in, in in a little bit more detail for for people that haven't read the book yet uh, this this difference between the grief and the grievance? So the the literally the the, the meaning and and how we apply that in our social psychology per se. Yeah, of course. So. Um, you know, so grief and grievance have the same etymological origin, but when we we talk about them, I think when we think about grief, we're thinking about sadness, right? The the feelings that 
um, that come from from a loss. Grievance refers instead to the to the sense that um, you have suffered a harm or injury, and then um, the complaint that people make um, based on having suffered this harm or injury, right? So in the book, I talk about the move from grief to grievance, right? That you can suffer a loss. Sometimes it's, it's you know, if someone dies of natural causes, of course there's grief, but there isn't a move to grievance because, you know, it wasn't caused by someone else. But in the case of a, a loss that is the result, let's say, of um, state inaction, right? There was supposed to be some kind of um, you know, regulation that could have prevented a fire and, and, and someone dies in it, then often, you know, there's this, the move to grievance to try to say, oh, how do we change the situation so this doesn't happen to anyone else? Or so the parties that were responsible are held responsible. So this is what I mean by grief and grievance. And in there, it comes the, the concept of privilege, Right. So one thing is to lose life and, and be considered at a different level as a human from others versus, well, I'm sad because I don't have that privilege anymore. It, it, I don't know why we need to explain this, but we probably have to. So let's let's go there. <laughs> right. So, you know, so I'm one of the things that I'm doing in the book is saying, Black grief and white grievance are two ways in which people are mobilizing in response to loss in the United States. But I want to be clear, and I'm glad you brought this up, that I'm not saying they're equivalent, right? So the losses that um, African Americans are usually are often having to mobilize in response to are, are you know, of, of life itself, right? People who are killed, for example, by police violence, or people who were lynched, um, or the the losses associated with um, segregation when the country was segregated or not being able to vote. Whereas white grievance is often motivated not so much by um, material losses, right? Even though, you know, there's a lot of um, talk about economic anxiety motivating, um, you know, racial resentment um, in the United States among um, uh, white working class people. But when you look, for example, at things like the January 2021 insurrection, um, a lot of those people were CEOs, they were doctors, they were lawyers, they weren't um, suffering economic losses. So they were motivated by other form sense of being displaced, right? So often um, it's this fear that the country's changing, that they're not at the center of political debates anymore, their interests aren't um, the ones that are predominating. And so there's a sense of, of displacement or a fear often, actually. It's not even that they have been displaced, but the fear that they will be displaced in the future that then motivates, um, you know, um, I think um, people who have been used to being the dominant group then to, to mobilize, to try to defend um, what they see as their, their rightful position. So I think you, you talk about um, accepting the fact that, and here we can go in, uh, in some, uh, as a political science uh, <laughs> professor, explaining democracy uh, if it's needed, where, you know, it's not 100%, we're not in the polis of the, of the classic Greek 
town, we are a 51. So there is always going to be uh, somebody that wins and somebody that loses. And I think you make a point in your book where, first of all, we probably in America, we don't know how to deal with that. We don't know how to accept it, maybe more than in other places, yeah. um, maybe. And, uh, and is this a lack of culture? Is this a lack of education? I mean, what, what, what do you do find out here? And maybe how, what can we do to, mm -hmm. to kind of have this conversation? I mean, it's a social contract in the end. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the, the, you know, the things that I, I emphasize in the book is that we often think about democracy in terms of empowerment, right? So you go out, you organize, you get people together and you get your, your candidate um, to, to win or you get your, your policy to be adopted and, it's, and it all feels good. But in fact, right, if you won, that means someone else lost. Right. So democracy is as much about losing as it is about winning, but we don't talk about that other side of it. Um, and this is, I think, what we see is that when you have a, you know, um, you know, I think in the United States, you have a, a democracy that has been shaped by by white supremacy. And this has meant that some groups, um, the dominant group, whites as a group, have had to suffer fewer losses that, um, and so they're less accustomed to having to accept even legitimate loss. I think, you know, your point probably about the, the US um, because of its position as a world power and, you know, being a, a superpower or, you know, one of the dominant economies in the world, I think you're right that in general, probably the US has, has been as a country less accustomed to loss than let's say, you know, I'm from Nicaragua, which is a little country that was repeatedly invaded or fought over by major powers mm -hmm. throughout its history. Like you just, you know, you you know that you are kind of at the mercy of these larger geopolitical forces. That's not an experience that most U.S. citizens have. Hmm. No, it makes sense. Um, but what surprised me a little bit, too, is how this conversation has been going, I think, for, for quite a while uh, with ups and downs in, in the news. And unfortunately, lately, they're not, you know, they're kind of hammering on the same, on the same bell. And uh, do you see some progress um, happening? Or, and maybe even looking at the upcoming election soon. I mean, the, the, the whole political environment, I, I feel like it's, it's much more extreme. I remember when I was studying back in the 90s, um, political government, you know, the US was still looked at as a bipartisan, solid, with very few differences. Well, now we're actually looking at kind of like going to the extreme. And I feel like the people that suffer the most in this are, again, the the minority and the immigrants and and you know the the, the black movement that again why does it need to why instrumentalize so much by the other um mm -hmm. so i know it's a big question but <laughs> yeah if you can give me some of your opinion that'd be great yeah so i think you know we're we are in a moment that is um so I would say two things in response to that. One of them is that um, the first is that we're in a moment of, of deep 
backlash. Um, where I think in, in 2020, you know, you saw these, these enormous um, multiracial but black led protests and this, this moment when people were really trying to think about what racial justice would require and what we needed to do. And I think, um, and, and this was coming on the heels of a very energized um, black protest movement. And I think what we're seeing now is, is a, you know, a very sustained and deep backlash to that, a sense that we need to, that that, that was a moment of, of gains that need to be reversed and are being reversed. If you think, look at things that, you know, the Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action, the attack on voting rights. I mean, there is a, there is a clear sense of um, that, that people are trying to undermine whatever gains were made um, in, in the past couple of decades, uh, trying to move forward in terms of, of, of greater racial equality. And, and I think that, you know, that has been the pattern throughout US history. And I think the, you know, the, the moment in which we find ourselves is also one that I think tells us something about US democracy, right? That, that in the past, when we thought US democracy was healthy, and when we thought, oh, you know, everything is fine, we were probably not looking at mm. some of the, the ways in which minorities in particular were still having a really hard time um, right. participating politically. And so um, from the perspective of maybe the dominant parties, you know, I think, or, or was there a smooth hand, you know, handover of power, things of that sort, it seemed like it, it was healthy, but when you looked more deeply, there were always these these issues that had never been resolved and continued to to undermine U.S. democracy. And I think now, you know, unfortunately, one of the major parties has become a very right wing, radicalized party, and 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 we find ourselves in a in a moment when when a lot of them are are um, unwilling to accept that you know the wins of their opponent might be legitimate, and so they're willing to dispense with democracy for the sake of, of not having to share power. And that's probably the most dangerous thing that could happen um, for politics. And I think you're right. I mean, uh, history has always been written by the, the powerful. So uh, I think that's why we are rewriting history lately. And it's not for the sake of rewriting, it's just because to be honest, into what really happened and that would have been told us by those that were printing the book. <laughs> Let's go back to that, right? Mm -hmm. So um, talking about the storytelling, I mean, I, I have to touch before we end this conversation in, in the role of media and, and the news in all of this. Um, it, um, yeah, but... That's the question. <laughs> How much is the media influencing the wrong narrative and what maybe can be and should be done to have a, an honest view uh, on things? Yeah, no, you know, I think there's a there's been a lot of, of, of critiques of the media um, for good reason, because I think there is um, there is a, a you know a sense in which the the sort of defaults of of, um, of journalism don't serve us well in this moment, right? The the sort of idea that to to 
to tell an you know an accurate story you have to tell both sides well what happens if actually there is you know a symmetry right so one side is more radical than the other but you're you're forcing it into this oh we have two extremes and and that actually going back to the to the way this played out you know in the 1960s people would talk about um, the NAACP and the KKK, like they were too extreme. So again, um, this sense that we, we have a hard time talking about um, radical radicalization, I think, um, when it's not, when it doesn't fit into this, this, um, this both sides narrative. And, and similarly with the way in which people talk about polarization, right? So this sense that the problem is that we're not getting along or the problem is that we're not, um, you know, working together as opposed to the problem is that we have, let's say, um, injustice and people are calling that out um, and, and, and facing um, backlash for it. So I think it's, it's, you know, I think there is, there is a, um, the, the media in some ways is, has a hard time, I think, being clear about what the stakes are and about what the conflicts, what the source of the conflicts are rather than trying to tell it in this, um, this kind of horse race narrative of there's two sides and, and they're competing as opposed to saying, you know, this is the substance of the disagreement and both of these positions are not, let's say, morally or um, equivalent, for example. Right. Yeah, these two sides narrative, it's, uh, I don't know, uh, you can't really ride two horses. That's my point. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> eventually you can for a little bit, but you're not going to ride one correctly. And again, apart from that, that kind of joke, it's the fact that even if you limit yourself to just report in an objective way, you will probably see that it doesn't add up to to put it on the same level. So that's that's up for leaving to the audience to think about it. Uh, talking about the audience, I'd like to to finish this with um, who did you envision um, as the audience for your book? Um, is it somebody more for one side or the other? Is it more of a uh, academic text or is for anybody interested in in this so who who did you have in mind when you were writing this book so that's a great question so i think um obviously you know i am um, hoping that my colleagues and and um you know and students will read it and um but i also think it is um it's an accessible text and i think it's talking about issues and questions that we all face in our daily lives and that we see on our tv screens and in our you know in 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 our um, in our politics. And so I think, I hope that, um, you know, folks will, will find it helpful for trying to think about this moment that we find ourselves in and thinking about, you know, the, the challenges that U.S. democracy is facing. So I'm hoping that it will be of interest to, to folks who, who care about, you know, being a good citizen and, and, and how to move forward um, in the yeah. United States. And not only in the United States, it's about understanding. I, I, I'm going to close with what I usually say, that if we, if we let the listener and, or the viewers in this case to uh, leave this conversation with more 
questions and thinking a little bit more than when they started. I think we did a good job. Um, I'm sure your book does exactly that. I will have uh, links to your profile, to your website, to the book as well. Again, it's just called Black Grief, White Grievance, The Political of Loss. And uh, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, it sure made me think. Uh, and, I, and I think everybody should uh, inform themselves be before jumping to any conclusion. <laughs> That's always a very good lesson, I think. So thank you again, Juliet. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye, everybody. Everybody stay tuned. Check the book, check the links, and uh, subscribe for more stories that uh, hopefully would make you think. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals with Marco Ciappelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our shows. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.